Rinkwide Vancouver. The Canucks defeat the San Jose Sharks by a score of 3 to 1. It's Jeff Patterson along with Matt Sikaris. 10 to 1, 3 to 1. Wasn't quite as easy as the one-sided victory a couple of weeks back down at the Shark Tank, but it is two more points in the win column for the Vancouver Canucks, and it puts an end to their brief two-game losing streak. It's rink-wide Vancouver. It's brought to you by Betway, and we're here to break it all down on a night that royalty was in the house. And we're not talking about Quinn Hughes, but we will talk about Quinn Hughes an awful lot as this program goes along, Matt. An eventful second period, and that's ultimately where this game turned in favor of the Vancouver Canucks with the buzzer-beater shorthanded goal that stands up as the winner. Incredibly eventful second period after a first period that was just about as bad as any period of the season. Plain to discuss there, and we'll get into it. A lot of happenings, but, you know, a third period as well where San Jose gets a very early goal on that five-minute power play. Thomas Hurdle scores less than a minute in. It's a 2-1 hockey game, and at that point you're thinking... Are the Canucks going to let this ugly ducking stick around here and have a puncher's chance towards the end? JT Miller, who I thought had a pretty quiet night up until his goal, bangs home a rebound, and lo and behold, it's a 3-1 win for the Vancouver Canucks. I'll say this, style points certainly weren't as good as the first game against San Jose and perhaps not as much as you would like against a truly awful hockey team. But losing this game would have brought, I think, the first negative bout of the season. If you lose three in a row and lose the third one to the San Jose Sharks, I think that would have given a lot of doubters. That would have brought a impending doom mm-hmm. back into the conversation about these Vancouver Canucks. So a necessary win given it was on home ice against a poor opponent and they got it done closing out in the third. Yeah, and they opened the scoring officially, but really did they? Because when I talk about that eventful second period, It began with a coach's challenge and an effective one by the Vancouver Canucks when it looked like the Sharks had opened the scoring. William Eklund was there to deposit a rebound. I watched Rick Tockett on the bench, uh, Ian Mike Yo, and clearly getting instructions from uh, above the eye in the sky, and they elected to challenge a video review there. And quite frankly, I mean, I've lost all hope of trying to get it right when it comes to goaltender interference. I thought that one was going to stand, quite frankly, It didn't, and so what the Sharks thought was the opening goal of the hockey game, and this team doesn't score many goals, and particularly not many on the road. So that had to be a bit of a double-dagger for them that uh, they kept it close. They thought they'd open the scoring. That one comes off the board, and two minutes later, Quinn Hughes, on a solo mission, does open the scoring and allowed the Canucks to go from there to the 3-1 victory. But what did you make? I thought Patrick Demko, he makes an incredible save when he's down, yes, and I kind of thought that might work against him, that if he could make that save, absolutely, then why couldn't he have tried to get across the net to make another save, but he was momentum was taking him away from the puck, exposing that open side of the net. Challengeable play. You wonder what the coaches have been instructed in terms of what does and does not constitute goaltender interference. I'm absolutely with you. I thought that the first rebound attempt being stopped by the left pad of Thatcher Demko would negate any kind of further goaltender interference. Full credit to Ray Ferraro on the TV side. He called it. He said he thought that one was coming back. And, you know, call on the ice was a goal. I think you do want to err on the side of offense and goals in this league. So I thought it was somewhat of a break 
for the Vancouver Canucks. Teddy Bluger's involved in the crease as well. So you thought, okay, maybe they will look at it and say, well, there was a Vancouver Canuck competing as much as there was a San Jose Shark impeding Thatcher Demko's. And frankly, the position he's in, Jeff, I'm not necessarily sure he'd be able to get back over and make the save on the second rebound attempt of William Eklund. So a little bit of a break there for the Vancouver Canucks, but hey, give them credit. Two minutes later, as you say, Quid Hughes opens the scoring and you're off to the races. And he's uh, leading the races, the scoring races, that is, for the, and not just among defensemen. Quinn Hughes is the National Hockey League scoring leader at the end of this night, which, again, I mean, just every night out, it feels like he's continuing to level up. So he's up to 30 points in 19 games. He gets his eighth of the year. And for me, it just took me back to last year. Remember last year, he didn't score his first goal till after Christmas. It was against the Sharks where he circled the zone and eventually was able to put the puck in. This time, not a full circle of the zone, but boy, Matt, you can just see it now. When he senses that opportunity, when he sees, and he's got this vision that he sees space opening up before others do, and then he attacks, and that shot off left wing, far post and in on Mackenzie Blackwood. I mean, we're running out of things to say about Quinn Hughes, and they're only 19 games into this season. Well, the eight goals ties to career high already, Jeff. On November 20th, mm-hmm. some 19 games into the season, which is shocking in and of itself. That goal tied him back with David Pasternak for the NHL scoring lead. He would go on to register another point and retake the lead all on his own. And and what I love about that play, and boy, talk about a guy who's playing with confidence. He tricks Mackenzie Blackwood into thinking he's going to center a pass where the Vancouver Canucks have some traffic. And as soon as Blackwood gives him a sliver on the short side, the puck is past him and in the net. I think that's a function of Quinn Hughes, A, the confidence, as I just mentioned, but B, having worked on his shot all summer, he has come back as a much more dangerous shooter. And I'm not just talking velocity there either. Accuracy is part of it. And look, as we evaluate this 13-5-1 start for the Vancouver Canucks, and that in and of itself is a sentence I don't think anybody thought they would be saying this here, I think the lion's share of credit has to go to Quinn Hughes, the way he's playing, the confidence he's playing with. Like, there were discussions over the summer, Jeff, and you and I are both guilty, saying, how much more upside is there? Mm-hmm. We had gone through previous summers and said, look, Hughes and Pedersen are still getting better. They're still young. We went through this offseason going, both guys were absolutely sensational last year. Pedersen with 100 points. Hughes was 76. Darn near a point per game as a defenseman. Tied for second in the league. How much more upside is left? And, well, it turns out quite a bit. More upside. Continues to be, in my view, the best skater in the National Hockey League this year. And we're almost a quarter of the way into the season here, Jeff. And he's the favorite for the James Norris Trophy. And I suspect the heart case is only going to get more acute, more pronounced as more people get on board with the season that he's having and take notice. Yeah, hands up here. It's a podcast. You can't see me, but I'm waving my hand. I thought he had room for improvement, but incremental. Like, I just didn't know how much more than 76. A few more goals sort of thing. Right, because he's got the puck on his stick so much, I figured double-digit goals for him. But the idea of him being a heart 
Trophy nominee, never. Exactly. Like, that had never crossed my mind, let alone crossed my lips. Well, we thought the Norris would be tough enough, given the presence of Kale McCarr and this incredible generation of defensemen that are out there. So, no, I, I, I'm with you. I thought, yeah, okay, he can score more goals. Maybe he can push it past 82 points, be more than a point-per-game defenseman. But the pace he's on right now is just absolutely scorching. Second fastest Vancouver Canuck to 30 points. The first was Tony Tanney, 83-84. took him just 17 games. But, of course, Jeff, as you recall, the high-flying 80s, there were tons of offensive records put up in that era. era. So, you know, that he's doing it here 40 years later is nothing short of astonishing. Well, and I joked on Twitter before the game that there is an element of truth to this. Like, Quinn Hughes is educating a couple of generations about the greatness of Bobby Orr because the league keeps tweeting out these statistics that Hughes is doing things that really have only been done by Bobby Orr and a handful of others. Although, as they pointed out, the league did, that Quinn Hughes gets to 30 points before his 20th game Bobby Orr did it five times, Matt, in his career. So it is incredible. It's something we certainly have never seen here in Vancouver from a player that plays the position that Quinn Hughes does. But uh, yeah, just mind-boggling stuff when you try to contextualize it uh, and compare it to Bobby Orr. Let's get back to this hockey game, though. And as you mentioned, Quinn Hughes does pick up another point that gets him to 30. But there were a few other things that we've got to get to before then. And one sort of played into the other, and that was... In a one nothing game, Nils Hoaglander in front of the Canucks bench, tangled up with Kevin LeBanc, and it's without a doubt a slew foot. I mean, he puts his leg behind LeBanc and then leverages that to throw LeBanc to the ice. You know, I think the referees handled it properly here, and I know that there's a lot of blowback on Canucks Twitter, certainly, because it's a Canuck player. If the tables are turned and it happens against a Canuck player, people are screaming bloody murder, but I think the officials... They called it a major penalty so that they could review it. And then they had a couple of looks at it. It wasn't one look in real time and having to make that decision. And so I applaud the officials. Again, fans may not have liked the ultimate call, but I do think the guys in stripes handled it properly. And I didn't have an issue necessarily. It's in the rule book now. Slewfoot is written into the rule book and a match penalty is assessed. And it's a dangerous play. It's a dangerous play any way you come at it. Again, was it the most egregious intent to injure? No, I I wouldn't say that for a second. But again, Nils Hoaglander puts himself in a position where the referees are going to take a long, hard look at it. And at the end, they decided that it warranted the match penalty. And so he gets tossed out of the game and puts the Canucks in a vulnerable spot there with a one nothing lead, even against a bad team like the San Jose Sharks, you're still putting your team in a tough spot by taking a five-minute penalty. And it's too bad because I thought Hoaglander was having a pretty good game to that Absolutely point. He, he did some fantastic work and got the lead assist on the Quinn Hughes goal to open scoring for the Vancouver Canucks and in the hockey game. No matter what you think of the end result, the process here was good. The linesman actually comes over to the official and alerts them to what he saw. You see a huddle of the linesmen and the two referees by the penalty box. I know Shorty and Ray were a little bit confused on television as to why they were huddling because it is a more subtle play than it is a uh, loud and dangerous play. Although, as you say, uh, I mean, it's a five minute intent to injure penalty is what winds up being called here. Officially, it was not the most forceful slew foot 
There's also a little shove mm -hmm. as well. So it's two pronged. And again, not the most forceful shove. But when you're accelerating somebody's momentum down to the ice in a prone position, and Kevin LeBanc does leave this hockey game and retreats to the dressing room after the play, that's got to be called. So I commend them for the process. And look, the Vancouver Canucks were able to overcome. I don't think he's going to get any kind of supplemental discipline from the league here, although it does come with a, a match penalty does come with an automatic phone call right. from the league. I, I, think I think that'll be that. I think five minutes in a one nothing hockey game at the time right. is penal. LeBanc returned to the game. Mm -hmm. I'll be surprised if there's supplemental discipline. We're applauding the officials on the ice. Well, I think if the league is going to get it right here, the story is over. I mean, even if it, there's a phone call that comes with that, I don't think there should be further right. discipline. I, I mean, I think it'll be no more than a finger wag. The other part of the process they get right is that calling it a five-minute penalty allows them exactly. to review it. Yeah. So hats off to the two referees and the linesmen for good process here. I can't agree with the call of a match penalty. Again, I did not think it was the most vicious or dire. They say intent to injure. I'm not necessarily sure that was his intent. But needless to say, if it's a point of emphasis, you're looking for those slew foots now and trying to get that play out of the game, then this was handled appropriately. So the Sharks go to the power play for five minutes with a couple of minutes remaining, not even a couple of minutes, a minute and a half remaining in the second period. And you're thinking for the Canucks, you know, kill off the first 90 seconds, you get to retreat to the room, refresh, reset, whatever, and then come out and kill the remainder. But wait, because in the truly dying seconds of that second period, a remarkable sequence really that starts in the Canucks zone with Dakota Joshua reading a play, knocking a pass out of the air and out of the zone, and then he's able to follow up and get it to center dumps it in and heads to the bench for a change that allows Sam Lafferty and Teddy Bluger to come on the ice. And I have to say, Matt, as we sort of set up that 2 nothing goal, the, the shorthanded goal with a half a second remaining in the second period, Mackenzie Blackwood was terrific. I mean, gave the Sharks a chance in this hockey game, kept them close. But with five seconds to go and a puck gets dumped in like that, he has to do better than just sort of tossing it to the corner where the four-checker has the opportunity to just eat it behind the net, whatever, ring yeah. it high around the glass. Instead, he puts it into no man's land, and it really was no man's land for the Sharks because Lafferty gets in there, digs it free, centering pass to Teddy Bluger, and then Lafferty with the presence to go to the front of the net, and as the tenths of a second ticked away, it clearly beat the clock, though. There was no doubt yeah. in the building. And, and then his the defenseman doesn't know help there with the turnover no, 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 on no, the no. play, Jeff. So nope. uh, you're, you're quite right about Blackwood, but there's a second mistake sure. on the play from well, the San the, Jose. These are the Sharks. These are the Sharks. And really, that's the backbreaker because this is a team that's not going to win a lot of games down to nothing with one period left to play. Full credit to Joshua, as you say. Uh, full credit to Bluger, who gets the initial chance. And then uh, to Lafferty, being in the right place at the right time. And Frankly, I thought the Bluger-Joshua-Garland line was pretty good at even strength tonight, so it was nice to see a couple of those guys get rewarded with a shorthanded point, the rare shorthanded points. And, you know, at that stage, the shots are 24-16 after two, Jeff. The score is 2 nothing, And I don't want to say the Vancouver Canucks can coast through the third because they're still killing off a three and a half minutes of a major penalty early in the third. And as we mentioned, Thomas hurdle scores a goal there to make it a one goal hockey game but I do think you're breathing a little easier oh, yeah. 
yeah. at two nothing against San Jose. And you know, Blackwood makes what thirty six saves tonight and was pretty good. And frankly, the guy at the other end was pretty good tonight as well in Thatcher Demko. Yeah, and it's one of those nights where you don't think of Demko necessarily, but remember, this game was scoreless through the middle stages of the second period. And I look back at my notes, there were a couple of Giovanni Smith, and maybe the kind of fortunate that it was Giovanni Smith and not one of the other Shark players that you expect to put pucks in the net, but what a chance he had all alone in front early in the second period. And Thatcher Demko flashed his left pad there, made the stop, as we talked about, made the save before the goal that was challenged. There were chances in the first period. William Eklund on the shorthanded two-on-one when he cut to the middle. How? I'm still mm-hmm. not sure how he missed. Demko didn't have to make that save, but that was a great opportunity for the Sharks as well. And at the end of the night, Thatcher Demko helps the Vancouver Canucks defeat the San Jose Sharks by a score of 3-1. to one. Here's a couple of numbers. We'll get to the stat that stands out later, but uh, try these on for size. The Canucks have won 11 straight now against the San Jose Sharks, so uh, we'll see how far they can push that streak. They see the Sharks again on Saturday down at the tank, and then again the game before Christmas here at Rogers Arena. So four games Is that it for them? And then no more against San Jose after that, which... They could lobby the league, sign up for a few (laughs) extras somewhere along the line. Well, I ask only because, you know, other teams are going to get a chance to play the Sharks. But this is interesting. And it was mentioned on one of the broadcasts here, Calgary doesn't see San Jose till February. Right. And so you put all these points in your basket now, and if you're the Flames and you're struggling and you're trying to keep up, you don't get the opportunity to play against San Jose until it may be too late. And it feels like it's getting late early for both of the Alberta teams. I just want to mention they've won 11 straight against the San Jose team. And Thatcher Demko now 10-0 lifetime. He's a Southern California guy, but he has absolutely mm-hmm. owned the only Northern California team in the National Hockey League. Two great saves on Anthony Duclair late. A yep. terrific save on Ferraro. A sliding save on Ferraro in the third period. Ferraro had a rebound chance in the first period as well. Zetterlin had a slap shot chance in the first period. So another subtle but very, very good performance out of the Vancouver Canucks goaltender on a night where they needed him enough because the guy at the other end was doing pretty well. And really this, we've become so accustomed to the Vancouver Canucks putting up a barrage of goals and getting a ton of power play opportunities and and converting a high percentage of those power play opportunities. This game was very much off script in terms of, you know, what we've come to know as the norm for this 23-24 Canucks team. Yeah, and we should mention, I mean, JT Miller gets his 12th of the year. What a season he is having. He was quiet. The end. first two lines were quiet. They I, were. I, yeah. I mean, it's a night where your top six really did not bring anything close to their A game, and you still won. But that's becoming the norm here for the Pedersen line at the very least, although Kuzmenko hit the crossbar, had a, an opportunity. Mikheyev had a really good chance early off a of Tyler Myers shot that I think sort of banked it off Mikheyev and nearly opened the scoring. Look, there have been some loud nights for JT Miller, but at the end of the night, you know, he wins a faceoff that allows the Canucks to have possession. They work it around, and ultimately, they get it to the front of the net, and there's Miller to bang home his 12th of the year. 19 games in, and JT Miller's got a dozen goals already, so we've all marveled at Brock Besser and the season he's had, but JT Miller's right there knocking on the team lead when it comes to putting pucks in the net, and he's knocking on the door of the team lead and scoring, the league lead and scoring as well. Miller... From Besser and Hughes, 7-10 in to the third period. And that was it for the scoring in this hockey game. And that one allowed the Canucks, I think, to exhale just a little bit. So San Jose's woes continue on the road. They're 0-8, Matt. They haven't won a game. They haven't picked up a point on the road. 
They've only scored five goals away mm-hmm. from home all season. Can we long. stop this nonsense, though, that they're not going to win 10 or 11 games that are going to be as bad as the San Jose team of 30 years ago? I mean, they, they were 3-3 three and three in their last six heading into this one. It was an absolutely dreadful start for the San Jose Sharks. They are a horrible hockey team. No one would dispute that. But I think they're going to win enough of their games not to threaten any of those they don't score, though. That's the problem, is Mackenzie Blackwood can make all the saves he wants, but one goal a game is difficult to to make that stand up. So I think it is going to be a struggle for them. They'll win some games. They'll catch some teams off guard. They'll have a few nights where the power play connects. Logan Couture hasn't played for them yet this year, and obviously he's a big part. So I think it's going to be a real struggle for them, but I'm not sure that they're going to be historically bad. But the Canucks are two for two against them. They see them again Saturday and then again in that game before Christmas. So opportunity will come knocking for the Vancouver Canucks once again. We'll continue uh, to break this thing down. We're going to get inside the locker room. You're going to hear from Rick Tockett and Sam Lafferty, Quinn Hughes, among others. As we push on, we'll get to the rink-wide Vancouver three-star selection. We'll have the stat that stands out. We'll get a little listener feedback as well on our social channels at rink-wide van. But it is time now for the Betway bet of the day. No NHL games on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Much like no NHL games on Thursday. Two dark nights from the NHL this week on American Thanksgiving they, they week. should be able to do better when it comes Well, to certainly this. tomorrow. If yeah. you want to seed Thursday to all the football, Completely. so be it. Yep. But, you know, tomorrow should be a hockey game. So we'll go to the uh, awards table where... Quinn Hughes is now the betting favorite to win the Norris Trophy at plus 275. Get him before the odds drop even further on your Betway bet of the day. Must be 19 plus to play. Please play responsibly. Quinn Hughes with his eighth, Sam Lafferty his fourth, and JT Miller with his twelfth. The Canucks defeat the San Jose Sharks by a score of 3-1. to one. This is Rinkwide Vancouver. Quite Vancouver, and we're breaking down this 3-1 Canucks victory over the San Jose Sharks. Jeff and Matt with you. We've run through the goals and some of the key plays in this hockey game you've heard from us, and we're going to hear from you, the listeners, a little bit later on, but let's get inside the locker room now and hear from some of the principals involved in this one. And we'll start with the coach, Rick Tockett, and his thoughts on the significance of that last second, tenth of a second goal in the second period that gave the Canucks the 2-0 lead. Yeah, I mean, you get the five-minute uh, power play and stuff. Uh, yeah, that was a hell of a, you know, get that two-goal cushion. You know, it's a shorthanded goal. You know, it, it got some juice. I saw uh, after that, we had a, b- a bunch of ozone time where guys were getting some chances. You just got to be careful because then uh, people, di- you know, when you're getting chances, you start diving in, and they were sending guys out. You, you know, they almost had a couple of two-on-ones. You got to be careful when that happens. He likes his juice, Matt. He mentioned juice again. <laughs> no, but those kind of, you get where he's coming from. I mean, absolutely a momentum shifter. And given the Canucks a boost, and if you're the Sharks, you think you're, you know, going to start the third period uh, on the power play in a one goal game and a chance to tie instead. You're, you know, cleaning up from the mess that you made. And now all of a sudden it's a steeper hill to climb. Well, there are five momentum shifters in this game. The yeah. coach's challenge, goaltender interference, takes the San Jose. Goal off the board. Then Quinn Hughes scoring two minutes later to reverse the tide. The Nils Hoaglander, five minutes in a match penalty, was clearly a momentum 
shifter, the Lafferty goal at the death, as we're talking about, then the hurdle goal early and JT Miller responding and, and answering. So there, there were plenty of different times when this game could have gone one way or another. But yeah, the Lafferty goal, as we discussed in the first block, Jeff, I, I mean, I think that's the backbreaker for a team that, let's face it, is undermanned. Yeah, and the man that scored it is fourth of the year. Lafferty saw it sort of the same way that we did. I think it started with uh, a great read by Dakota and uh, to break up that play in our zone, and then uh, they got the puck deep and not much time left, so take a chance, and uh, Teddy made a nice play uh, to get that puck over. I'm glad he's given credit to Dakota Joshua as well, because Joshua doesn't figure in the scoring there, but uh, he was very much a part of making that play happen. And a guy that's making every play happen for the Vancouver Canucks. We've talked a lot about him. Let's hear from him. And that is the captain, Quinn Hughes, his eighth of the year, open the scoring. He gets the second assist on JT Miller's goal. So another two-point night for Quinn Hughes. If you're playing along at home, eight goals, 22 assists. He's up to a league-best 30 points. And I think Canuck fans are going to like to hear this, that Quinn not going to rest on his laurels. Always trying, you know, I think I can't get caught um, being satisfied or happy. I think in the past, you know, getting real satisfied and then, you know, letting your uh, foot off the off the gas here. And I think that I've been really good at, you know, sticking day to day and trying to attack each day. And so I'm trying to do I'll take the L on this one. I wasn't sure if he was the right choice as captain. I'm not sure why I thought that necessarily, but I do think that putting that C on his jersey has been a huge impetus in him leveling up. Like, I think he has taken that responsibility, has taken ownership of it and what it means, and you talk about a guy that's leading by example, and he is doing everything, everything that you can ask of a captain. Yeah, the only thing I'll say is um, I thought giving Elias Pettersson the C as an enticement to sign a long-term extension was the best way to go about the business. Now, turns out, certainly sounds like giving him the C was not necessarily something that he wanted and wasn't going to achieve the end of getting his name on a long-term contract extension. So I think once that became clear, Quinn Hughes was the natural choice, and I will give him a ton of credit for growing into this role and growing into this role quite rapidly. He... Kind of reminds me of Henrik Sedin, Jeff. Uh, there was a time when, you know, you thought Hank wasn't the most vocal guy, didn't have a whole lot to say. They gave him the C, and then suddenly we were all talking to sort of a a wise veteran who was imparting wisdom, felt comfortable speaking on behalf of his teammates, and I don't think there was anybody his teammates would rather have speak for them than Henrik Sedin. And Quinn Hughes is giving me very strong Henrik Sedin vibes from his first year as captain, so it's turned out to be an exceptional choice. Well, let's get to the rink-wide Vancouver Three Stars, as we always do here on the post-game pod. We start by looking at the stars selected in the rink. Quinn Hughes, Thatcher Demko, JT Miller. We've talked about all three, but only one of them is going to figure in the rink-wide Vancouver Three Stars. You can probably figure out which one it is, and that is Quinn Hughes, uh, first star again. I'll have to go back and tally how many times he's been the first star already in these opening 19 games of the season for the Vancouver Canucks, but uh, another two-point night for Captain Quinn. So he's the first star. I'm going with Sam Lafferty as the second star. And, you know, it wasn't like a dominating performance from Sam Lafferty, although uh, we touched on it. Uh, The third and fourth lines, in the absence of any sort of real offensive thrust from the top of the lineup, certainly through the first couple of periods, the bottom six 
and I know that the offense hasn't been there, certainly at even strength, but not for a lack of trying. I thought Garland and Bluger and Joshua had a ton of really good shifts. Teddy Bluger had eight shots on goal in this hockey game, Matt, and had a number of yeah. really quality looks. So I'm going with Sam Lafferty as the second star with the shorthanded goal that turns out to be the game winner. And again, I come back to Dakota Joshua. And remember, he was a healthy scratch the last time. He didn't get to have the fun of the 10-1 win. At least uh, he was with the team, but he didn't get to play that night. And I think he's taken that to heart because he hasn't had many nights off since then. I want to say nights off. It certainly hasn't been a scratch since, but he's been noticeable and he has to be at his size. And you look at the underlying numbers, the individual Corsi four of 80%. The shots were 10 to 3 at even strength for the Canucks when he was on the ice, having spent almost all of his shifts in the offensive zone and makes that terrific play to start the, the shorthanded goal uh, to make it 2 nothing. So I've got Dakota Joshua as the third star. Yeah, the uh, appropriate. As we talked about that, Joshua Bluger Garland line was terrific tonight. I uh, hate to correct you, Jeff. I'm showing seven shots from Teddy Bluger. Oh, he may have been the guy it. who they they removed a shot from the Vancouver Canucks right at uh, the buzzer. All right, stand It was correct. supposed to be 40 shots on goal. Five shots on goal for Mark Friedman here tonight, Jeff, as he gets back into the lineup. And Rick Tockett, uh, I heard him uh, pregame say he wanted to get Friedman back in. He felt that there was... Uh, you know, job served there in terms of having him watch on Saturday nights. So you got to feel good about the defense being as active as they were in getting shots to the net tonight because it went beyond Quinn Hughes. Yeah, and just back to Bluger for a sec. He had a terrific chance uh, in the third period. A rebound came right out to him, and I think it was Tyler Myers was at the side of the net. We both remarked as we watched, like, well, it's Tyler Myers doing in that deep, but was able to work a puck in front, and Teddy Bluger had an opportunity there on one of his seven shots. Uh, Anthony Bavillier cannot buy a goal. His only two goals came in that 10-1 romp, and they were the ninth and 10th goals of the night then. He had that glorious opportunity from Lafferty uh, seven minutes into the second period, and it started with Nils Hoaglander who play on the side boards to spring those other two, a two-on-one uh, I don't know where the season goes for Anthony Bavillier. You know, they're winning a lot more than they're losing. And so it's not as big a story as it might be if they were a 500 team or they were in the chase pack and you've got a $4 million guy that's sitting there on two goals, basically at the quarter mark. He had some opportunities tonight, but it's way past the point of, you know, a pat on the back for opportunities. Uh, there does have well, to be a bottom line for a $4 million player. Which brings us to some of the feedback we're getting uh, on the rink-wide game over post. Nux 12-12, what stood out to you? Beauvillier, he's earned more time on the Miller line. Top-rated forward by at hockey stats cards. If that was the case, then he was a lot less noticeable to my eye than to the hockey stats cards, folks. I think we're getting to the point, Jeff, with Anthony Beauvillier where we have to start talking about healthy scratching. We have to potentially start talking about demotion to Abbotsford in the case of perhaps saving $1.15 million against the salary cap, which you can save because we're today that the Canucks are going to pursue Ethan Bear, and we know they're going to have to commit some dollars against the cap if they're going to make that happen. And then thirdly, you, you do wonder if Anthony Beauvillier is going to be a guy they have to move and even eat some money 
on that contract if they're looking to upgrade the defense in a more meaningful way than just signing Ethan Bear at some point here over the next couple of weeks. So he's been a streaky guy. We talked about how quiet he was at the beginning of the year, and then he strung together a few good games. But the lows have been a little lower this year for Anthony Beauvillier, and the high's not quite as high. Yeah, he does get an assist, the second assist on the Quinn Hughes goal that opened the scoring. But for me, there's got to be more than just scoring late gravy goals in a 10-1 win over San Jose and not be able to follow that up. So we'll see where it goes for Anthony Beauvillier. But yeah, it's remarkable to think that he has been an every-night player for this team. If Pia Suter comes back, you know somebody would have to come out of the lineup, and, and it does feel like... Time may have come for Anthony Pavilion, but uh, that's for down the road because Pia Suter has missed four in a row now, and we'll see if he heads out on the road for the Vancouver Canucks. Rick Tocchin just keeps saying he's day-to-day, but a mysterious injury that uh, has kept him out of the lineup now for the better part of a week. If we just want to take a quick look at some of the underlying numbers in this game, as you would expect, the highest-scoring team in the NHL against the lowest-scoring team, uh, Canucks had to, to grind for the victory, but they controlled play. Team Corsi, 4 of 61%. The shots at evens were 31-18 in the Canucks' favor. The scoring chances, according to Natural Stat Trick, were 34-18, so a pretty wide edge there. And the high dangers ended up being 9-6 for the Canucks, but that was aided by a 7-0 run in the third period. So uh, according to Natural Stat Trick, the Sharks didn't have any high danger chances at even strength in that third period. I'd have to go back and... and Sort of look. I mean, they had 12 clear chances at the very least. I'm a little surprised at that. But uh, hey, maybe those numbers will change as well in the light of day. We shall see. The number that matters the most is the two points the Canucks get. Uh, In a 3-1 victory, they are now 2-0 against the San Jose Sharks. And again, they'll see the Sharks at the tail end of this stretch that is 3-4 out on the road. Starts in Colorado on Wednesday into Seattle on Friday. And then to the Shark Tank on Saturday. And that'll be five games in eight nights when they get to the Bay Area for the rematch here with the Sharks. 3-1, the Canucks defeat the San Jose Sharks. You're listening to Rinkwide Vancouver. Canucks beat the Sharks 3-1. We mentioned it right off the top. The Royals were in the building, and uh, I don't know what it is about the Canucks and the Sharks because, of course, Her Majesty dropped the puck preseason game between the Canucks and the Sharks way back when, 2003. Uh, No sign of Wayne Gretzky in the house for this one tonight, but uh, there was Prince Harry, and boy, did they keep that under wraps and just trotted him out to walk the blue carpet. Quick ceremonial puck drop. Wasn't even sure if Megan was there with him, but uh, then she got some camera time as well. So uh, Harry, of course, uh, leading the charge for the Invictus games that are going to be here in Vancouver. Rogers Arena will play host along with the sights in Whistler as well. So that's what brought him to town. I don't uh, know him to be a huge hockey fan, and he didn't see the best of hockey games, but this one did count in the regular season where his mother, or his grandmother rather, saw preseason hockey way back when. The unmistakable image of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and Mike Ricci. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Who you could not pick a more quintessential hockey face than Mike Ricci's. Uh, it brings me to Paul on the Rinkwide Vancouver Post. What stood out to you? The Duke and Duchess are fans of the Canucks. Well, I think the Duke and Duchess are also politically savvy enough to know <laughs> that you did not root for the opposition in the home arena where they have literally rolled out the red carpet for one of you. Uh, and uh, 
lastly, Jeff, um, they kept it under wraps. I don't think they show if you fail to keep it under wraps. I believe that is the protocol, uh, particularly with Harry and Meghan, because, of course, once upon a time, residents of British Columbia and when the world's paparazzi found out they were staying on the islands, they made haste for California. You know, it's funny. I was at the rink on Sunday. It was kind of a quiet practice day. It was an optional. There wasn't a whole lot going on. And I saw a couple of, like, front office executives. And I'm not talking about the hockey ops. I'm just talking about the business side. And they were touring a group through the rink. Now, I didn't think much of it other than it's interesting that a couple of higher-ups are here on a Sunday. And... Now, knowing what I know, I'm guessing that that was all part of security detail and probably just a walkthrough of the building for Harry and Meghan's visit to uh, Rogers Arena. They see the Canucks defeat the Sharks by a score of 3-1. to one. They seem to be enjoying it when uh, they showed them on the Jumbotron after one of the Canuck goals there. Meghan was doing a little dance. Uh, one guy that's not dancing these days is Elias Patterson. I'm sure he's excited that his team is winning a lot more than it has in the past, and the Canucks now 13-5-1, but... His production has slowed. We've talked about Quinn Hughes taking over the NHL scoring lead. It was a three-way tie. JT Miller uh, found the score sheet with his 12th of the year, but Elias Pettersson did not. Petey's got one goal and four points now in his last six hockey games. And it just, this was as pedestrian a night for number 40, especially given the level of competition on the other side. Yes. There just was nothing happening for him in this game, and it's hard to knock the guy that's had a share of the league scoring lead. Like, you don't fluke your way into that, but really, this is now more than a week. It's kind of closer to 10 days where there just hasn't been a whole lot going on for EP4. No, five attempts on the goal, six wins, five losses in the face-off circle. Uh, this after the head coach talking about how not just Andre Kuzmenko, but that line has to pick it up and play with more pace. And it's funny because we've given a lot of praise to Ilya Mikheyev, and I think rightfully so, given that he missed preseason, didn't have a training camp, was dropped in the lineup after the season had started and seemed to have not missed a beat, looked fantastic for a guy coming back from a serious knee injury and in-season surgery to repair last year. So play in the first period where Quinn Hughes makes that length of the ice pass, hits Andre Kuzmenko. There's a chance generated with Kuzmenko passing it off to Elias Pettersson. I know Ray Ferraro on the TV side said that Kuzmenko can't give that opportunity up, that he felt if Kuzmenko was you know, clicking on all cylinders, he would have had an attempt on the goal himself there and not deferred to Pettersson. You know, five attempts for Petey, which, you know, frankly seemed like a little bit more than what I had, yeah. you know, just seen with my, or remembered with the naked eye tonight. And, uh, you know, McCanvas works so well in the half court, but of course he's the speedy guy on that line. We had talked about how maybe he will have an Alex Burroughs effect on the twins. Alan Vigneault used to always say, I like Burroughs with the twins because he gets them playing with some pace. I heard Taka today talking about how, you know, sometimes Patterson has been a little too deferential to the others in terms of when they don't give him the puck and that maybe he just needs to play with a little bit more pace and force them to get him the puck, even if you're going to have to take an offside or two to prove your point to your line mates. So, you know, clearly something that we're going to monitor. And needless to say, I think that line is going to have to be a whole lot better 
if you're going to go into Denver on Wednesday night and win, that's a fantastic hockey game with all sorts of firepower on the other side. So the Canucks are going to need them to be better against the Avs. With Nils Hoaglander out of the lineup for the third period, uh, the parts of the third that were played at even strength, we're talking down to 11 forward. So we saw a little bit of a mishmash, not the blender uh, the way we did on Saturday when he was looking for a spark and trying to get away from some of the things that weren't working. But I thought it was interesting because we mentioned Anthony Bovillier and his struggles, but Bovillier did get a couple of shifts with Miller and Besser. And that meant that Somebody was missing off that line, and the somebody was Filthy Giuseppe, Matt, who had one shift over the final 11 and a half minutes of this hockey game, played just 13 minutes and 26 seconds on the night. Dare I say that PDG has gone yeah. MIA. Well, and really surprising, as you say, because you're already down a forward. Look, he was a great story through the first handful of games, and we all love the fact that he's willing to do the grunt work, the spade work, to puck retrieve, forecheck, and get his more offensively gifted teammates the puck. So there's going to be nights where Phil DiGiuseppe doesn't hit the score sheet or at least doesn't rack up points. But what are we now, Jeff, going on about 10 games where he's been pretty quiet? Yeah. It's been that long? About, about had, half of them? He had a decent now? night in Ottawa. He had a couple of assists. Yep. set up to Brock Besser early in the hockey game and then uh, to JT Miller as well. And you're right. Like, there aren't huge expectations offensively on him. But if he's going, he's, his line mates have got 13 and 12 goals. Like, yes. you would just think that somewhere along the way, he'd touch a puck that would work to his advantage. And in terms of goal scoring, uh, the empty netter that he had in Montreal at the tail end of that last road trip is his only goal in the last 11 games now. So, 13 5 and 1, we're picking nits to some degree. But. If you wanted to make the case that Phil DiGiuseppe is really masquerading as a second liner in the NHL and that a journeyman 30-year-old late bloomer who absolutely is deserving of a regular shift on this hockey club and would be with many, many hockey clubs around the National Hockey League, but he's probably miscast. He probably should be playing a little further down the lineup. If the Vancouver Canucks you know, had their druthers and had the magic wand and were able to fix all parts of their hockey team, maybe that would be one of them. But I think there are more pressing matters, particularly on defense. And so that means they're going to need DiGiuseppe to continue to hang as a middle six forward, at least in the near term, or at least until a Vasily Podkolzin or a Nils Hoagland or someone like that takes the bull by the horns and is able to do some of the things that DiGiuseppe does, A, on the offensive end, but be able to be trustworthy enough on the defensive side to earn that much ice time. I think you hit it right there. A perfect world, if you could wave a magic wand, Vasily Podkolzin would do all the things that PDG does and some. And he's just not there. And obviously he's been injured down in Abbotsford. He's back now. But that's a spot that you want to believe that uh, Vasily Podkolzin can develop into. I wonder if Niels Hoaglander at some point here, the way that he is coming on, Slewfoot notwithstanding, but I wonder if that would be a change that they would look at. Uh, different player, but you know he's up to five goals now and has played pretty well here for the last little while. And again, PDG kind of feels like he's fading away just a little bit. So we'll see where it goes. They're going to need all hands on deck, as you mentioned, on Wednesday, the start of this road trip against the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, we like to always throw out a staff that stands out from each and every one of the hockey games here on Rinkwide Vancouver 
This one's home cooked. This is one that I've been sitting on for a while, and I, I did punt it out on social media. When Quinn Hughes got the assist on the JT Miller goal and got to 30 points in his 19th game of the season, only two other Canuck defensemen in the past decade have had 30 points in a full season. They are Alex Edler and Jason Garrison. And Quinn Hughes has 30 before yeah. his 20th game of this season. So that's twofold. It speaks to just how little the Canucks have had offensively from the back end. And, and that sort of extended over time. We've said that a lot about Quinn Hughes is exceptional, but you know it also has sort of brought to the fore just how little the Canucks really have had over 53 mm -hmm. years in terms of offensive defensemen. But still, I mean, in the last decade, now three guys have reached the 30-point mark, and Gwen Hughes has done it five times, and these other guys, Zedler, had done it a couple, and, and Garrison had a 30-plus-point season. So, Well, they're going to get a fourth. Philip Ronick is going to get there uh, yeah. this season. They got 10 from sort of the uh, bottom-end defenseman on this roster, nine from Tyler Myers, and 18 from Ronick. And so scoring from defense has been light years better. We used to track this, Jeff, that amongst the worst from generating points from the back end. And that has been flipped on its head this year with that Hughes-Ronick pairing. There's lots of storylines. You're talking about Nathan McKinnon. You're talking about Miko Rantanen. But I, I think the storyline on Wednesday night is the two best defensemen in the National Hockey yes. League, and they have separated from the pack. I mean, we're in an era now where there are a ton of them, but uh, what Kale McCarr has done in his brief time in the National Hockey League and, and what Quinn Hughes is doing this season, and they're on a collision course for the first time uh, this year. So sign me up Wednesday night at Altitude. The start of this road trip, the Canucks coming off a win over the San Jose Sharks, so you know they don't have to necessarily scramble to find their game, but they're going to have to be better than they were here and the Avs, Matt, did you see what happened to them in Nashville tonight? They well, had a, they lost. But they had a 3-2 lead with a minute to go. Oh, wow. And Nashville scored twice in the final minute of regulation. Colorado didn't even get it to overtime to get a single point. So uh, Nashville absolutely pulls one out of the fire there. So the Canucks are going to see a, a Colorado team that will not necessarily be in its best mood. But when I just talk about those top two defensemen, Hughes at 30 points, Kale McCarr at 27 and nobody else with more than 20 uh, from that position in the National Hockey League. So they absolutely wow. uh, are in a class of their own right now. Well, and not only seeing Hughes and McCarr, but we're also seeing the two embodiments of this new modern NHL defense pair with Devon Taves playing, of course, with Kale McCarr and Phil Peronick and Quinn Hughes. We're no longer pairing the you know small, undersized, offensively inclined, great skating puck transporter with the big granite block stay-at-home defenseman. We want to give them partners who have enough capabilities with their skates, with their stick, to be able to complement that tremendous offensive defenseman. So that should be a fantastic test for the Vancouver Canucks and a, ter a terrific little head-to-head -head comparison for us fans and media. Since you mentioned the out-of-town scoreboard, Jeff, the LA Kings continue to win. They get a 4-1 victory over the Arizona Coyotes tonight, and so... L.A. still with just the three regulation losses yeah. on the season, 11-3-3, and three, two points back in the Vancouver Canucks with two games in hand. We talked about how the Canucks goal differential was just through the roof and light years ahead of everybody in the NHL this year. Well, lo and behold, the Kings are now plus 22. They're better than Vegas wow. on that score. One off the Boston Bruins, their third best in the league. 
in goal differential. Calgary comes back. They trailed Seattle 3-2, but they come back and get a victory. And so Calgary suddenly at 17 points, and they also have games in hand against the Canucks and against Seattle, whom they're chasing. And the Edmonton Oilers, Jeff, blow another two-goal lead tonight. They lose 5-3 in Florida against the Panthers in what was a chippy game. Matthew Kachuk said it pregame that they're going to take this game to the alley. And it seems like the tactic now against Connor McDavid and the Oilers is not only get a whole lot of pucks on net because Oilers goaltending is stopping nothing, but also get under their skin because you know how frustrated they already are. Now 5-11-1. And... All of us thought, hey, the Oilers are going to come back. They have too many great players not to dig themselves out of this hole. To dig themselves out of this hole and pass the Vancouver Canucks, they're going to need to make up 17 points in what's left of this season. And that is an exceedingly tall order, even for someone as great as Connor McDavid. Yeah, and he scored twice. They squandered a two-goal. They've been waiting for him to find the score sheet. He does. And Florida was without... Alexander Barkov, you talk about opportunity missed, and now Edmonton has to go into Carolina, and I was looking at the Oilers' schedule, I know it's a Canucks post-game pod, but uh, just on this point of Edmonton trying to reel in teams above them, Uh, between now and Christmas, like the Oilers' schedule is just loaded with some of the top teams in the National Hockey League, so it's not getting a whole lot easier for the Oil here, and you just wonder if it got late, uh, awfully early here for the Edmonton Oilers this season. Just want to get to a few of the comments we heard uh, from listeners and followers of Rinkwide Vancouver. Many talking about the black matte helmets tonight, Jeff, and how they looked with, of course, the black skate jerseys. Ernie says not a perfect game, but a better overall team effort. Nice to see Joshua playing the way Talkett wants him to. And if I'm not mistaken, it was Dakota Joshua who was right in the mix there after Connor Garland takes that cross check to the back. Right on a dangerous play where he goes face first into the boards. Law, he says, the win, great, but this team is still missing an element of size, skill, and speed in the top six. If Pod Colson could ever put it together, he fits the mold. We talked a little bit about that, that maybe Pod Colson or even Hoaglander steps into the DiGiuseppe wing if DiGiuseppe continues to be quiet. And Johnny, all the way in Taiwan, says, Demers needed against the San Jose Sharks? <laughs> Not cool. <laughs> Yeah, he's going to be in for more of a test on Wednesday. It'll be interesting to see how they roll out their goaltenders here. They've certainly got trust and confidence in Casey DeSmith. I would think you throw Demko at the Avalanche on Wednesday. And then does DeSmith get the Seattle game? Or do they go with Demko there and throw DeSmith at the Sharks here uh, on Saturday? So there are some decisions ahead for Mr. Saturday night still. He was early. It kind of gone away from that. But uh, maybe he will be this time around. Uh, And I guess maybe some of that will depend on the workload for Demko in Colorado on Wednesday night. Looking forward to that one. Because one thing the Canucks, I'm not taking anything away from their start at 13-5-1, but they haven't played a ton of the top teams in the National Hockey League. And so over the next five games now, they're going to see Colorado and they'll see Vegas here next week. So certainly looking forward to those tests to continue to measure this Vancouver Hockey Club that improves to 7-1-1 at home with the 3-1 victory over the San Jose Sharks, 13-5-1 now on 
the season. That's going to do it for us here at Rinkwide Vancouver. We'll be back on Wednesday after that game in the Mile High City as we are after each and every Vancouver Canucks game all season long. For Matt Sikaris, this is Jeff Patterson saying thanks so much for listening to another edition of Rinkwide Vancouver brought to you by Betway.